welcome all of you uh, online joining us too, but I want to just ask this question to those of you in the room. Do you ever play that game where you get a bunch of friends together and you're like, okay, if you're on a deserted island and you can only watch one movie for the rest of your life, what movie would it be? And I'm really interested in what you have to say, so let me hear a few of you. If you only had one movie, what would it be? Okay, wait, hold on. Groundhog Day, because it would feel like that on the island, right? Very good. Lion King. Lion King. Oh, okay. Sama. Sama. Sandlot. Oh, Sandlot. Okay, I, I never saw Sama. I didn't know what that was. Sandlot, that's a good one. Toy Story. Oh, that's such a good one. Woo, I've been watching that one a lot lately. Yes. Dumb and Dumber, anyone? No. You got one? <laughs> yeah, that's fantasy, man. Okay, so let's, let's try this one, too. I, I'm kind of interested, and I know some of you had your favorite movie, and there's no way you're going to say that in church. Am I right? Uh, here's another one. If you were on a deserted island, and you could only listen to one band for the rest of your life, what band would it be? Let me hear it. The band. The band, yes. Oh, some of us old enough know that band, actually. You know, the correct answer is the community worship band. I didn't know if you knew that. That's the correct answer, right? Some of you are like, do I say Hillsong? No, not here. Community worship band. That's the right answer. So, true story. Uh, a group of guys in England years and years and years ago um, were asking these kinds of questions. And one of them said, if you're on a deserted island for the rest of your life, what book would you take? And all the pious people were all saying, well, the Bible, of course, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And G.K. Chesterton, who is a famous writer and theologian, he said, I would take Thomas's Guide to Shipbuilding. <laughs> That's a smart dude right there, you know? Yeah, he, he would like the Bible, but he would also like to get off the island. So I'm going to take a book that shows me how to get off the island. And I was thinking about this this week, and I thought, if, if I could only even read just one section of the Bible the rest of my life. It's a no-brainer for me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just want to spend time with Jesus every day the rest of my life. And if I didn't have the rest of the Bible, which I love reading through the whole Bible, if I didn't have that, that's what I would read. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just the story of Jesus' life over and over and over, spending that time with him. In fact, it's one of our commitments of community, every day with Jesus. And part of that commitment is not just reading and listening to him from his word, it's also praying. So let's just take a moment and pray right now, uh, because we're going to enter into some time and really looking at Jesus and hopefully a, a fresh way for those of you who've been Christians a long time. And for those of you, this is kind of new to you, we're going to hopefully answer some huge questions. So, so let's pray. God, would you be with us right now? We're not on a deserted island. But we know there's, a, there's only a few things that really, really matter. And our relationship with you is at the top of that list. So God, help us understand you maybe better than we ever have. Continue to show us who you are. Help us get to know you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen.
Amen. Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them the Gospels. They are four different accounts of Jesus' life. So it's kind of like four different people writing about the same person. You're going to have some of the same stories, but you're also going to have some different stories. Sometimes the same stories are going to have a different perspective, a different take, because it's a different person. Uh, when, I was, when I was growing up, somebody explained it to me this way. It's kind of like if you have an accident in an intersection and you had somebody at all four corners, they would all tell the story slightly differently, even though everybody when they read it, oh, that's that, that's that accident. But from different vantage points, you're going to have some different information. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have some different perspective. But they're also specifically writing to different audiences. And so they, they put some different things in there. Like Matthew, for example, is writing to a uniquely Jewish audience. And so he loads the gospel with a lot of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So he shows them the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. He shows Jesus fulfilling them. Mark is writing to people with ADHD. HD. So it's short to the point, bam, it's like maybe, you know, one of my favorites, but that's not just why. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew and Luke both give us uh, a historical introduction to Jesus as baby Jesus. Now, we, we've said already in this series, we're in a series called The Good Book. We've taken four weeks already and looked at kind of the story of God working through the Old Testament. The next four weeks, we're going to be spinning in the New Testament. But, but all four of these last four weeks have been leading up and pointing to Jesus from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. We, we've already kind of seen that. And so now we kind of lead up to Jesus arise. But we said earlier that Jesus pre-existed being a baby in Bethlehem. You know, like the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, they, they, they create, let us create man in our image. Like Jesus was already there, but he then took on the form of a human, took on the form of a baby in Jerusalem when he's born. So he preexisted all this. So when Matthew and Luke introduce him into humanity as a baby, they both do it from a historical perspective. Now track with me on this. Matthew because of his audience, gives us a very clear Jewish historical perspective. If you've ever read Matthew chapter 1, what's at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, the first several verses? Anybody remember? The genealogy. So, so-and-so had this son, and then he had this son, and then that one had this son, and this one had that son, you know, all the way through until we get to the birth of Jesus. So he shows us the historical perspective from a Jewish person. This is the genealogy leading up to Jesus, a historical picture. Luke actually gives us the historical picture, and, and maybe this might be the most famous uh, narrative of Jesus' birth. It's, it's the most read. In fact, um, one, of, one of my favorite things about Christmas every year is that Charlie Brown, on that little movie, in front of millions of people every year, reads the Christmas story straight out of Luke chapter 2. Whatever anybody else says, Charlie Brown gets to tell us what Christmas is really all about. Luke chapter 2. Let me just read to you the first two verses. I want you to see. It's set in a historical perspective. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So what's he saying? So he's not just writing to a bunch of Jews like Matthew. Matthew's saying, Here, here's the Jewish heritage. Here's the Jewish genealogy. He's saying, we are plopped right in the middle of a Roman empire. And he gives us the people and the places and the times. He, and, and the Bible, literally, Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, gives us a lot of that kind of perspective. So we can see this is not just some, some fairy tale that somebody 
cleverly, you know, came up with over a fireside chat, you know, like, no, this is a historical person named Jesus, and both Matthew and Luke give us that kind of a picture. If you're uh, curious about this kind of stuff, and you want to know, it's like, Jesus is actually a historical figure. He's not just made up, like, other people outside of the Bible write about him, historians of the day. But if you really have questions about that, I'm going to give you two recommendations for books. One is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. The Case for Christ. He has a whole series, The Case for Faith, The Case for God, The Case for the Creator. But The Case for Christ is really good. And in fact, it talks about the historical evidence that Jesus existed, all right? The other one I would say um, goes back a little bit further. It was written a few years before that, and that is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And there's two parts, but both of them by Josh McDowell. And both of them give us this kind of historical perspective that we know Jesus was a historical person who lived. Like nobody, nobody should be doubting. Like Jesus isn't a fairy tale. Like people outside the Bible in his time wrote about him and wrote a lot about him. So Matthew and Luke give us this historical picture. But John is my favorite gospel. And I want to spend some time in John chapter 1. And this message in particular, I really want us just to kind of come to grips with who, who John is talking about here. And as he begins, it's, it's rather poetic. It doesn't sound historical at all in the sense that the others have written. He, this is more of a poetic way. It's more like this, this, this big view of Jesus coming to earth. There's, there's something really special about it. And so John's words are uniquely different than all the other gospels when it begins this way. Listen to this. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's a capital W. We know later he definitely is referring to Jesus. But in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That, that initial phrase, in the beginning. It's interesting. When um, the Old Testament is originally written, it's written in Hebrew. And then um, New Testament times, they actually uh, translate the entire Old Testament into Greek. And that book is called the Septuagint. Like some of you are like, so, okay, anyway. So when you, when you translate the entire thing into Greek and you go back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, the very first phrase in the beginning is exactly the same phrase that John uses here in the beginning. It's exactly the same wording. In the beginning was the word. Now that word itself is a pretty cool word. It's capitalized in our Bibles. We know something's up here. We find out later he is definitely referring to Jesus. But, but the word here actually is logos, if you want to translate that. So that, that's a Greek word, logos. And typically, I don't give a lot of background into the Greek because most of us aren't Greek and we don't care. We just want to know, what, what's the point? Like, what's the Bible trying to say? But in this case, it's really important to know that's the word that they're using there for Jesus. Have you ever heard this phrase, this, this statement? You never step in the same river twice. You ever heard that? It means that things are always changing, ever, ever shifting, right? The guy who's attributed to saying that, at least the first time, was the guy that lived 500 years before Jesus was born. He's a Greek uh, philosophizer. If you ever watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, he was a philosophizer. And uh, his name was Heraclitus, or Heraclitus. And he said, you never step in the same river twice. And he's talking about how the universe is always in flux and it's always on the move. This 500 years before Jesus, get this. And he comes up with a word to describe how everything in flux, it, it would tend to just go crazy and yet something's holding it all together. And the word that he used for that was logos. So 
How was the whole universe held together? In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. And I think there's so many different kind of plays on this word that he's using here that it's, it's kind of cool. But he says, and the word was God. The word was with God. The word was God. There, there are cults that in other religions today that will try to tell you that actually that's a mistake. What should have been written was um, the word was a God, small g. The word was a God. But uh, understand this, John inspired by the Holy Spirit, was not making a mistake. He was saying, Jesus is God. He always has been. He always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Word was God and still is God. That's what John's claim is. In fact, we we look way back towards the end of his letter, and he says, the whole reason I wrote this is so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ. He is God. He is the one that we've been waiting for. But, but I love this picture that the Bible gives us that Jesus is the word. Now think about this. When you go back to creation, and what does it say? You know, and God said, let there, you know, when God says he spoke. And then we get this picture, like everything that was created was created through Christ. And it talks about that in other places in the New Testament too. He is the word that was spoken. He was the creative force. And then we, we start with Genesis with that, and we go all the way through. Everything leads up to Jesus arriving. And you get to the very last book of the Bible. What's that one called? Revelation. Listen to this in Revelation 19, 11, 12, and 13. In fact, this is a picture of Jesus. So it's like this this prophetic, amazing, powerful picture in, of Jesus in control. Listen to this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. His name is written. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. There's many names for Jesus. But one of them, the description, even in Revelation, is his name is the Word of God. Now, speaking of word, or I would say words, there's several that jump out to me in John chapter 1 that just really capture my attention. I, I don't know if it's just me or if other people have the same words that jump off the page at them, but I want to go back to John chapter 1 and keep reading. We'll start reading in verse 4. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light. Here's the word that jumps out to me, the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or some translated understood it, but, but this light and the reason I, I just, I think it jumps off the page at me is because of the way that John is kind of letting us in on this, this bigger picture. Like, in the beginning was the word. And by the way, what did the word say right away? <laughs> Let there be light. Saying he was the light. Jesus himself, describing himself, says, I am the light of the world. I am the light. Now, what's cool about this is he says to us, and you are the light of the world. As, as his followers, we are to also shine for him. Now, here's the, here's the cool thing. Kind of like the relationship that the sun has with the moon. The moon doesn't have any light of its own. By the way, that's me. It looks like I have light, but it's just, I'm just reflecting the light, right? So the moon doesn't have any light of its own. It's just reflecting the sun's light. And we are also the light of the world. It's not our light. It's his light just reflected when we reflect clearly his character. 
and his kindness and his grace and his love. When we reflect that, we're reflecting him, and then we become also the light of the world. You know, like we, we join him. Um, I, I heard a long time ago, somebody made a statement that I, I had to sit with for a while because it really stunned me. They said, if God wanted to, he could just enter any hospital and just immediately heal everybody in there. And I would be like, and why doesn't he, right? Like, haven't we asked why? Why didn't he do that for my friend? Why didn't he do that for my mom or my dad or my, my cousin, whatever, right? How, how come he didn't do that? But this person goes on to say, but he wants to do ministry with us and through us. And so we get to go in and sit with somebody in the hospital and pray with him. We get to go and be there and be his hands and his feet. He wants to do those things through us. If we could take that a step further, if we really understand ministry, we don't do ministry to people anyway. We do ministry with people, just like God wants to do ministry with us. And so he says, I, I want you to understand I'm the light of the world, but, but with me, you're the light of the world too, because you're going to reflect these things as well. And all this is cool, and all this is important, and then we come to my favorite verse. It's verse 14. We're skipping some stuff, I understand, but verse 14 says, the word, and this is where we know he's really talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now there's a couple other words that jump out to me there, but I want to explain this a little bit. This is really, verse 14 is helping us understand something that both Matthew and Luke are all kind of saying, and that is what we would call the incarnation, like God in human form. Um, there, there's, there's a little flower called a carnation, but it reminds me of a, another story. Let, let me just hang in there with me for a second. I'm going to come back to carnation. Another beautiful flower is, is special. A couple of couples are going out to eat. And they're riding married. You know what that means? The guys are in the front, women are in the back. If they were dating, they, they would be together. But no, the guys are in the front, women are in the back, right? So they're just driving along. And this guy's talking to this guy. And he goes, hey, last week I was able to go to that, that thing that we had talked about. He goes, hey, what thing? And he goes, you know, that memory thing. He says, like, they, they help you and they program, like, how to remember names and how to remember things and all that stuff. He says, it's, it's been a huge help. It's really, it's really helped us. And he goes, what was, what was the name of it? And he goes, he goes, well, they, they got this, this, these tools. He goes, oh, I got, I got, I got, I got, I got. What's the name of that flower? And the guy starts shooting off names. He goes, no, 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 it's, it's, it's red and it has like thorns. And it says, he says, a rose? He goes, yeah, that's right. He goes, hey, Rose, what was the name of that thing I went to last week? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's another story. So anyway, let's go back to the, the carnation. That's the, that's the one we're after. We're talking about incarnation. Do you know what the word carnation literally means? It means this, listen to this, flesh colored. I know carnations are different colors, but, but the name actually means flesh colored. So the incarnation, God putting on flesh, like it talks about in, in John 1.14, God putting on flesh, it's, it's like this, God has come to us in the color of flesh. Incarnation. Elton Trueblood uh, was a famous Quaker theologian, and he points out this, and I'll, let me quote what he says. The historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It's far more radical than that. Listen to this. He says, it means that God is like Jesus. 
What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He put on flesh so that we could understand him. Maybe my favorite translation of John 1.14 is out of the message, and it says it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I just love that. That's what God did for us so that we could understand him. Matthew says it this way, Emmanuel, right? Which means what? God with us. God with us. Incarnation. God with us in the flesh, being with us. Um, when I was a little kid, you know, they're always trying to explain, like in Sunday school and stuff, how, how these biblical concepts, how we, our little minds, when we're like five and six, can understand it. And they said, if you wanted to, if you wanted to go in and communicate with a group of ants, a colony of ants, you can't just stand there as a human and start talking. They're not going to understand. You have to become an ant. And then you get down and you get in the colony and you begin to communicate. You, get, you can talk ant talk. I don't know what that is. I even saw Ant-Man and I still don't have this figured out, right? So you, you, get, you become an ant if you want to communicate with ants. If you want to communicate with uh, gophers and groundhogs, you just come to my backyard. They're <laughs> everywhere. I've got tunnels everywhere. They're eating the bottom of my plants. It's, it's, it's bad. But the idea is if you want to become... If you want to communicate with an ant, you become an ant, right? So God said, I want to communicate with you in a special way. I'm going to become one of you. Uh, this isn't on the screen or anything like that, but I just want you to listen. This is Paul talking to the church at Colossae about this very thing. So this is Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read several verses. Just listen. The Son, Jesus, capital S, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn overall creation. Let me explain that for a second, because Jesus... While he was born in Bethlehem, he wasn't like the first born. In fact, he never had a beginning because he's God. He created everything. He was never created. Does that make sense? So what does firstborn mean? Well, in their culture, the firstborn was the preeminent one. The firstborn had all the rights. Okay, so let's, let's start over. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, like logos, right? And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile unto himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. I, that's powerful stuff. That's John 1, 1 to 3, just unpacked even further. But again, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But there's two other words that really do jump out of that verse to me. I want to go back and read verse 14 one more time. John 1, 14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. Another word for glory, by the way, is character. So just listen to it. We have seen his glory or his character, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Those are the two words that jump out to me. Because... It's almost like they're the polar opposites. I was, having, I was having dinner with my dad this week, and we were just talking about life and, and ministry and churches. And, 
my dad was just saying, you know, I never regretted one of the moves we made. He would help a church for a few years and then move to another state and help a church for a few years and move to another state. So I moved around. That's why I lived in Denver and, and in Capistrano and in Iowa and other places too. It's like I lived in those different places because my dad always moved around. And he goes, is that why you stayed in one place for 34 years? I'm like, yeah. See the pendulum swing? <sighs> move around every few years, stay put. It's just the pendulum swung in our family. And I don't know if it was fully a reaction to that, but, that, that's, but, but that's the same thing happens with grace and truth. They're, they're almost like opposite sides. And we tend to kind of lean in one way or the other, right? We're either like grace, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, everything's gonna be okay, or truth, you know what really God says, God says this, blah, 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 blah. And we kind of like lean one way or the other. But this, this is why this is so beautiful. He says, but Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us the character of God, he's full of grace and truth. They come together. He doesn't leave one. He doesn't drop one off. He doesn't say that's not as important as this. He's full of grace and truth. Let me explain both. Grace is being given something that I don't deserve. Grace is, is being given something I don't deserve. That's why we talk about our salvation being a gift of God's grace. He's, we, we didn't earn that. We're not good enough. Even if we're pretty good. <laughs> like, or even if we're not like very good. Or even if we're not like really good compared to you know who. It's like, no, none of us are good enough. He says, it's by grace that God makes this offer to us. He gives us something we don't deserve. By the way, mercy is a really a cool word in the Bible too, but it means I don't get something I do deserve. I like both of those words, by the way, but they mean two different things. But, but grace is I get something I don't deserve. And he's saying we have that because of what God has, is doing for us. That's why when we sing a song about grace, a lot of times the word amazing is in there, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I'm getting something I could never earn, even on my best day. It's amazing. That, that's his grace. Another way we've explained it for years is like this little acronym or acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. We get the riches. We get the promise. We get salvation. But Jesus paid the price. God's riches at Christ's expense. We, we get the grace. That's grace. And then Truth. Jesus later would say uh, this. He would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Pretty bold statement, like many of his statements. But I am the truth. And another place, it's interesting, if you really put these dots together, it really makes a lot of sense. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, what's the truth? The word of God. Who's the word? Jesus. Who's the truth? Jesus. If you know the truth, if you know Jesus, he's the one that's going to be able to set you free. It's not just what he said, or it's not just what they wrote. It's who he is. He is the truth. And understand this. Jesus didn't come to lower the standard. That, that's kind of, if you lean on the grace side, but you forget the truth side, it's like, well, listen, you know what? Let's, let's just be nice. Let's just lower the standard so everybody can get in. He didn't do that. Grace is offered. Grace is still there, but the truth is, is reality. In fact, he's the standard. And he says, I, I know you're, you're never going to be perfect like I am. I'm going to do that for you because you can't do that. And I'm going to pay the price for you because you can't do that. 
That's grace and then truth all kind of merged together. That's why when he says to people, I, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. Grace, truth, right together. Makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense when we watch Jesus in action and all of us literally leaning one way or the other go, I wish I was more gracious at times or I wish I was more like stick with the truth and don't be wavering around with our culture like the, the truth seems to change in our culture. No, grace and truth fully expressed in Jesus. And as we, as we look through the rest of this book of John, I, I tell you, it's, it's probably my favorite book in the Bible. We read through the whole thing and he has several statements that Jesus makes, and we call them the I am statements. I'm not going to give you them all, but he says stuff like, you know, I am the light of the world. We talked about that one. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He says these I am statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am. But the craziest one is found in John chapter 8, the end of the chapter. And Jesus is talking to those religious leaders And just so I think he could push their buttons just one more time, the way he phrases what he says next, they immediately pick up rocks to kill him. He says, before Abraham was, I am. You thought my grammar was bad last week? That's, that sentence makes no sense, right? Grammatically, not for us, except when you know that I am was the name of God. Before Abraham was born, I am. He said, I'm, I'm not just a guy that's 30 years old, and, and I'm like, I'm God. I, I came here for a while so I could communicate with you, but I'm God. I'm bigger than all this. I am. And again, why does John record all of this stuff so that we would know that he is God? This, this is big stuff, especially in a culture today and which believes Jesus is probably a really good teacher or a great human leader, but not God. I'm going to kind of refer to another place, but although we're not going to read from that, and that's what we call the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's the longest recorded message of Jesus in any place. There's three chapters there. It begins with a section we call the Beatitudes. And... Um, Sometimes it's translated, you know, blessed are, or if you're like old school King James, blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. It also could be translated happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. That's the first one, poor in spirit. And I think if you just spend time on each one, you're going to see like a spiritual component to each one. Poor in spirit are just, are just those who recognize, I can't do this without help. I need God. And he's like, happy are the people who figure that out. Like, blessed are those who figure out that they need me. Like, happy are those, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And he goes through these other beatitudes, and he talks about, you know, we are the light of the world, we're the salt of the earth. He gives us these pictures. He talks about relationships. He talks about reconciliation. He talks about all kinds of stuff. He talks about worry. He talks about stuff that we deal with every day in this one big message. And at the end of it, in chapter 7, he ends by telling this, this little story. He says, like, to... To listen and to obey what I say. Not just, not just have like a head knowledge of it, but I mean literally do what I say. It's, it's like a man building a house on a rock foundation. 
But if you ignore what I say, it's like a guy building a house on sand. It could be a beautiful house, but, but when the storm comes, that one's going to be destroyed. So Jesus tells this whole thing, and, he, and really, it's really just kind of this picture. This, this is what it means to follow me. Chapter 5, 6, 7. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to put me first. This is what it means to call me Lord. This is what it means. Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. If you've never read that, that that's a great place to go to. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he ends with that, that statement. It's like, if you really obey me, it's like building your house on a rock. The storms are going to come. And they do. Remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus promised, in this life, you will have trouble. Like, you will have storms. It is going to happen. But there is this rock that we can build our life on, and it's his teaching. And when we obey it, it's like building on that rock. Now, the reason I, I just kind of throw Matthew 5, 6, and 7 into this is because, like I said, that's, that's the longest recorded message of Jesus. And it gives us this picture. So John is, like, showing us he is the Christ. And then Matthew records this one, this one big message where Jesus just lays out, this is what it means to follow the Christ. This is what it means to follow me. And I really kind of designed this, this lesson this way. I, I didn't need you to write down anything. Like sometimes I'll say, hey, you might want to write this down. You might want to write this down. The only thing I want you to do this time is just answer this question. And you don't have to answer it out loud, but you do have to answer it. All of us do. And here's the question. Is Jesus God? That's the question. Now, I'm, I'm going to just let you in on a little secret here. It's not quite as simple as yes or no. It, it is that simple, but so that you understand what the real option is, is either Jesus is either God or he's a fraud. He can't be a good human leader. He can't be a good teacher. He can't be any of those things because he claimed very clearly to be God. And either he was a total fraud, meaning he intentionally deceived everyone, or he was a lunatic, meaning he was deceived himself, but, but everybody bought into it. So he's either God, he's either who he said he is, or he is a fraud. That, that's really the choice. So it's not just, is he God? Oh, yes, maybe not. Maybe, maybe he's just a good person. Maybe he's just a good leader. We don't we have those options. He's either God or he's a fraud. And when we recognize who he is and that he's God... He can change everything in us. And that's what we're going to get to next week. But I'm going to go to, back to John chapter 1. And right before verse 14 are verses 12 and 13. So I'm also good at math. I really am. I'm fantastic at math. So listen to verse 12 and 13. Because when we understand who he is and we say, yes, I want him to be Lord, king of my life. Listen to this. Yet to all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. A verse we refer to quite often is in Ephesians chapter 1, and it kind of ties all this together. He says, before the foundations of the world, it was God's plan to adopt us into his family. Remember that? We, we mention that regularly around here because I just, especially when we're doing this series through the whole Bible, it's like real fast, but it's like that is the ultimate story. From the beginning of time, it was God's plan to adopt us into his family and Jesus was going to pay the price for that adoption by going to the cross for us. But make no mistake about it. Jesus wasn't just a good leader. It wasn't just a guy who got caught up in something and then they crucified. It's like, no, he was God. All of this was predicted. All this was prophesied. Jesus fulfilled over 200 prophecies himself when it comes down to all of this stuff. 
And this is the beauty of it. We get to be his children. We get to be in God's family. God's family. Our staff is reading a book right now, and we just kind of go through a chapter each time we get together. And the, one, the one we were reading through today, it was just interesting, it was today. Uh, they, they made a major point, an illustration based on the television series on PBS called Downton Abbey. It's not Downtown Abbey, it's Downton Abbey, right? But here was the point. The, the storyline is really mostly about the people downstairs. It's about the servants, the people who are you know, doing all the things that the people upstairs said need to happen. So the people downstairs, and there's people upstairs, and it's just saying, our life is kind of like, there, there's God up here, and he makes decisions. Sometimes we don't always understand those decisions, but it's our job to obey him and fulfill that. And so sometimes we catch ourselves down here, downstairs, going, well, I don't know why he said that. That doesn't make any sense to me. If I was God, if I would, I would do it differently. Right? You can understand that. And I just love the way this book kind of like pulled this illustration out of that storyline of Downton Abbey. It's like, well, we're the ones downstairs. We're the ones obeying what he tells us to do. And it doesn't always make sense to us, but here's, here's the point. They know things that we don't know. They have a perspective we don't have. They, they see things we don't see, right? And so it's just saying when we're down here, but here's the beauty. God invites us. This is so cool. Are you ready? Are you ready for cool? One person is ready for cool. The rest of you are just ready for ice cream. You can't wait till this old man gets done, right? No, are you ready for cool? Here it is. God says, I don't want you just to stay downstairs. I want to have a relationship with you. And Jesus says that in another place. He says, I don't want to call you my servants. I want to call you my friends. That, that is so cool. That is so powerful. And there's still a point where we don't fully understand his ways are above our ways, but he invites us into this relationship with him. And that's why he did everything that he did. That's why he put on flesh and came and lived and moved into the neighborhood so that we could have this relationship with him. It's pretty amazing. All of this is today a reminder for, for me that Jesus is not just a get out of hell free card. He's God. Let, let that soak in. He's not just the big guy upstairs. He's God. And I know that phrase and my other illustration about Downton Abbey really confusing. He is upstairs. <laughs> but sometimes don't we use that phrase like missing the point of who he really is? Like when we just say the big guy upstairs. And in that same breath, we say, well, I got, a, I got an arrangement with the big guy upstairs. No, you don't. You don't get it on your terms. He's God. I'm not, you're not. Let's just get that through our head, right? Oh, I have an arrangement with God. Oh, really? I'd love to hear that conversation. I'm pretty sure it was one-sided. You talking and just hoping God agrees with you. That's, that's not how it works. Like, he's God. He's the captain. He's in charge. Let me, let me put it all in perspective this way. Any beach lovers? Any beach lovers? Mountain lovers? Yeah, we, I like them both. Anyway, but this, this particular picture takes place on the beach, all right? Anybody love to swim in the ocean? Especially during Shark Week? My family goes on vacation, and we're in San Clemente every summer during Shark Week. We watch it, and then we get in the water. We're stupid, right? And every, every year, there's a sign that says, we did spot a great white out off the pier of San Clemente, and I still make sure there's somebody out further out than me, but it's, we still get in the water, right? Let's say you're out there in the water, and let's just say there's no sharks this time. So you're feeling pretty good. 
And out off the pier, somebody just makes the announcement. The world as we know it is about to end. You will never be able to go back to land. The only place for safety is Hawaii. Start swimming. I got news for you. I'm, I'm a fairly strong swimmer. I've, I've been swimming my whole life. I love to body surf. I like the ocean. I understand rip to, I, I, there's no way I could swim to Hawaii. I, I'll tell you right now, Michael Phelps won't make it to Hawaii either. I don't care, six, seven arms, the whole thing. It's like, he'll swim further than me. I know that for a fact, but he's not gonna make it to Hawaii. And while it's just kind of sinking in that it's like, I'm done. I'm not gonna be able to make it. This, this huge cruise liner comes up. And the captain gets on the bullhorn. He says, everybody who wants to go to Hawaii, get on the boat. Are you serious? I'm serious. Me? Yes, you too. So I get up on the boat. And all of a sudden, I realize, man, this boat's going to Hawaii. And I could never have done that on my own. So let me, let me tell you what the experience of going from there to Hawaii is going to be like. As I look behind, I see just the, the land just crumbling to the heart of the ocean. It's like it's gone. There's no way to go back. The only way to safety is to Hawaii. And now I'm on this luxury cruise liner just cruising along. Let me tell you two things I am going to never stop doing. Number one, I'm never going to stop saying thank you to the captain. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I could have never done this on my own. You know what that is? It's called worship. I could never do this on my own. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I will never stop saying thank you to the captain the rest of my life. And the other thing I will never stop doing is leaning over the edge of the boat and saying, hey, hey, get on the boat. You're not going to make it on your own. I care about you too. Get on the, get on the boat. Come on, the ladder's right there. I'll help you. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, right? The rest of our life, that's the only thing that matters, saying thank you and get on the boat. And we get all tied up in everything else in life that really doesn't matter that much. And I'm not even saying they're bad things. They're good things. But let's just put it in perspective. What matters more than saying thank you and get on the boat? Zero. Nothing matters more than that. And so next week when we come together to worship, I don't want you to do what happens sometimes. I know what happens to me sometimes. I get, I'm back there, and I'm like, man, the band sounds so good. I'm just like, ooh, this is, this is a, and these people are so talented. And I'm, I'm just going to let them sing. No, no, I need to be singing, like at the top of my lungs. Like, I got to say thank you too, right? And it's not the only way we worship, but it is a way that we worship when we come together. But all week long, in between services, you know the other thing we're supposed to be doing? <laughs> get on the boat. Come on, come with me. And next week, I'm going to go to church. You want to go with me? Let's get on the boat. That's what's important. That's what we do with our, yeah, we go to work and we raise a family. All that stuff is all good. And it's in those places we can say to our kids, get on the boat. And we can say to people at work, get on the boat. We can say at school, get on the boat. All of that stuff that God allows us to do are opportunities for us to help people find the captain. Jesus is God and we can't take that lightly let's pray God would you just put on our heart on our mind right now people who need you in our life we're going to see him we're going to see him tomorrow we're going to see him the next day we're going to see him next week 
And God, maybe we've asked them before and they said, no, don't bug me with that. Just help us to continue to love them, continue to serve them, continue to, to build a bridge so that they can, they can find their way to you. And God, would you continue to change us from the inside out? Help us by your spirit, by your power to make us the person that you want us to be. Not who we want to be with a little bit of your help on the side. Like, who do you want us to be? God, lead us into your presence day after day after day and make us like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.